back in 2006, Jan and I had the uh, opportunity to have one of our uh, trips to Albania to work with the local church there and with our friends, the Stuckies, who had ministered in Albania for so many years. And as part of that trip, one day we took a day trip and we went around Lake Okreed, which is the lake between Albania and Macedonia. So we had kind of a Macedonian call. We went over to Macedonia actually to kind of check out the area where the Stuckey's uh, daughter and son-in-law and kids are currently ministering. Um, so we went over to Struga, Macedonia. Uh, the city itself straddles a river. Uh, a river comes out of Lake Okreed. It's a very beautiful setting. But there's kind of a north and south to the city. The north of the city is mostly Macedonian, so ethnically Christian. South of the river is mostly ethnic Albanians, mostly Muslim. So it's the Muslim quarter of town. And as we walked over to the Albanian sector, we came upon the square. And right there in the square is a statue. And it wasn't somebody I was immediately thinking I was going to see a statue of. Uh, it was actually a statue of Mother Teresa. Okay, what's Mother Teresa doing over on the Muslim side of a Macedonian town? Well, Mother Teresa was an ethnic Albanian who was from Skopje, Macedonia. She was born in Macedonia. And so uh, even though she is not Muslim, she is held in high esteem. So there's this statue there. So I want to get a picture of it. Okay, great, we'll get a picture. Here's the statue. But kind of right behind her, she's standing there with her arms kind of folded in prayer. Right behind her is where the mosque is. And so there's this minaret sticking up, towering over Mother Teresa. So I got a picture. And if you ask me later, I can show you. Um, so I got a picture of it. But then I thought, what can we do here? So I started moving up a little bit. And as I got closer, the perspective changed. And Mother Teresa's statue got bigger, and that minaret got smaller, till I finally ended up with a picture of Mother Teresa with her hands folded in prayer over the minaret, which that was kind of cool. Um, but it was a matter of perspective. The closer I got to her, the smaller the mosque appeared. And this idea of perspective really comes to bear on the passage that we're studying in Numbers. This is a familiar passage, just to kind of set the scene briefly. Um, they've sent out the 12 spies to spy out the land. They're just getting ready to go in. And so where we pick up the story, Numbers 13.25, and we'll read through 14.10. As they've come back, it says, at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there, the Amalekites, dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. 
But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to all the people of Israel. Perspective. Okay. Let's start off with where their perspective was beginning. Put it into the context of Israel's history. Israel is now in, okay, how many years in the wilderness did they wander? 40, 40 years. They were out there 40 plus years, okay? This is year number two. This is their opportunity. Their second year of freedom from Egypt. They've left Mount Sinai. They've reached the wilderness of Paran. They're right poised on the very doorstep of the land that the Lord had promised them. Going all the way back to Genesis 13, where in verses 14 and 15 he said, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever that was the promise and they're they're just about ready to move in and assume occupancy so they figured some preparations were appropriate um, up at the beginning of chapter 13 it says the Lord spoke to Moses saying send men to spy out the land as we read Moses' later recounting of this in Deuteronomy 1, actually the people came up with the idea and the Lord okayed it. I don't think the Lord really needed to be uh, instructed in what the land was all about. Uh, but they sent these 12 out, sent 12 spies, one spy from each of the various tribes. Uh, these were not the prime men of each tribe, but they were strong uh, well thought of chiefs, if you will, of the, of the tribes. 
And they went out and they went and did a 40-day reconnaissance mission. And in verses uh, basically 17 through 24, it outlines how they, they did. They did a great job. They covered the entire land from north to south, east to west. They kind of hid everywhere, spying out the land. And as they were on their way back, they returned, and as Moses had instructed them, brought back some of the produce of the land. It says that they brought back pomegranates and figs, and then there was their showstopper. They had this bunch of grapes from the Escol Valley that was so big that they brought it back hanging from a stick that two guys carried on their shoulders. Okay. That's a pretty striking image of uh, a productive land. In fact, it's such a striking image that the Israeli Ministry of Tourism still uses it as the logo for their tourism industry. This little stick figures of two men walking along with this big cluster of grapes suspended on a post be uh, between them. So the people come together, and I imagine there's kind of a little hushed excitement as they're gathering together, and you know, we got a million guys plus women and children all kind of straining to hear. It's like, okay, quiet down, quiet down, quiet down. So they start off, and they're talking to Moses. It says they, they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit, verse 27. Okay. What are they saying? They're saying, you know what? This land is just like God said it was going to be. It's a, it's a wonderful land. It's a fertile land. Flowing with milk and honey is the way God had described it to them. You know, you're, you're going to have this land that's just going to be a bountiful place for you. So they start off strong. The land is just like God said. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And then we get to verse 28. 28 starts off, however. I look at this, and verse 27, 28 is a, uh, it's a pivot point. It's a hinge. And on this, really, the whole exodus experience for the nation of Israel hinge on that one word, however. Because they continue on and they say, um, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong. These are bad guys. And they go on, they, they really kind of list all the impossibilities. They say, the cities are fortified, and they're big cities. Big cities, big men. Besides that, we saw the descendants of Anak there, a race of giants. And then they summarize who they're up against. Verse 29 says, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. These are bad people. The implication being is we don't have a chance. They looked at it. They spied out the land, and they're coming back, and they're saying, we can't do this. And it's interesting, that juxtaposition between verse 27, the land is just like God promised, and then the word however is jarring. When we follow up a just like God said with however, we've got a perspective problem, particularly when that however deals with something that God's 
already addressed. God wasn't surprised to find Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, and all the otherites there in the land. Back in Exodus 34:11, he specifically mentioned them. He says, "Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites." In other words, God already had it covered. And there are other verses back in Exodus where he had promised, I will send hornets before to chase them out. I'll send my angel before to chase them out. And in this, this verse, I'm going to take them out. God already had it covered. He had already made the promise for the problem. God had it covered. But the ten spies, the majority report, forgot that. Now, it's unlikely that we in our daily lives worry too much about Hittites and Perizzites, Jebusites. But we are tempted to worry about some of the other things that God has already addressed. Think of Christ uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, talking about, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and body more than clothing. And then he goes on and says, look at the sparrows. God feeds them takes care of them. Look at the lilies of the field. You can't outdress them. God provides for them. How much more is he going to take care of his people? God's addressed that problem, yet it's one of those things that occasionally we get caught up in some of those areas, or perhaps we worry about what others are going to think about us. You know, if I stand out, if I stand up for my faith, are people going to think less of me? Well, Jesus addressed this as well. Although perhaps not necessarily in the way we would have preferred. Uh, I mean, there are going to be issues, and he acknowledges that. As in John 16, he says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Kind of sounds like some of the news out of the Middle East, doesn't it? And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes you may remember that I told them to you. In other words, God's saying he's not surprised when we face challenges, when we face difficulties in sharing our faith, when we face even rejection because of that. We need to be able to put on the perspective of Hebrews 13, verses uh, 5 and 6, where it says, For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me? God's got a promise for that. So when I find myself fearful, if I find myself saying, boy, God's really provided for me in the past, however, I've got a perspective issue. I need to ask myself, what promise of God am I forgetting? God has addressed this. I, I don't have to worry that God has not addressed what I'm facing. I just need to remember it. When I find myself following a recital of God's goodness with however, I need to change perspective and look at him, get close to him, and let the problems get their correct perspective. Well, this isn't going to be the final word. Caleb can't stand still anymore, and he steps up. And Caleb says, uh, it says, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses, because I imagine there was kind of a murmuring at this point. We're going to see a little bit of that, uh, a little bit more of that in 14. 
Caleb quiets the people before Moses and says, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Now, Caleb saw the same cities, same big cities, the same big fortified cities, even the same big men. But for some reason, Caleb is not daunted. Caleb's got a different perspective. I think Caleb was remembering everything that they had experienced in the past couple of years. I just went through, you want to have fun sometimes, sit down, start at the beginning of Exodus, and just start writing down some of the events that the Israelites had seen, had experienced, had lived. Um, the plagues, of course, on their behalf to get them freed. They saw the plagues everywhere except the Atlantic Ocean. God protected them. Uh, Exodus 7 through 12, they saw the final plague with the Passover and the death of the firstborn. They saw the parting and the crossing of the Red Sea. They were part of it. They didn't just see it. They looked up and saw the water. These are the people that are parked there at the edge of the Holy Land. They saw the defeat of the most powerful army in the world at that day, in Exodus 15. They had experienced God's provision. They had experienced bitter water made sweet. They had received the manna. In the wilderness, they have received water from the rock in Exodus 17. They saw the defeat of the Amalekites in Exodus 17. Wait a minute, Amalekites. Those are some of the folks in the land. They have already met these guys, and they beat them with God's help. They had experienced the Lord's presence at Mount Sinai. That must have been a life it should have been, I should say, I guess, a life-changing experience. They saw the giving of the law, God's special provision for them as his people, his promise of the land, as we've talked about already, God's Shekinah glory coming down on the tabernacle, showing his very presence in their midst. And even two chapters earlier, God's provision of quail for them. That was the perspective that Caleb was coming from. Hey, if we've experienced all of this, who are these guys? No wonder Caleb says, let's go. He sees the same problems, but he sees these problems in the light of who God is, what God has done, and what God can do and will do in fulfilling his promises. Now, Caleb should be praised for his faith. People should have said, thank you, Caleb, for reminding us that we're able to do this with God's help. But the 10 negative spies weren't given up. The majority report comes back again. It says in verse 31, the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people for they're stronger than we are. It's interesting. We are not able to go up they're stronger than we are. You can see what their perspective is, even from their uh, wording. And then it says something interesting. Verse 32, it says, They brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land. Some translations say an evil report. The word that is chosen here has the connotation of an evil intent. It's somewhat misleading. And in fact, as we continue on, we see that they're starting to put their spin on their report. 
They say this is a land that devours its inhabitants. Now, if you stop and think logically about that, that should actually be good for a people that are coming in to replace them. Okay, fine. Get them devoured, we'll move in. No problem. But they say all the people that we saw are of great height. Really? An entire countryside full of Shaquille O'Neal's all walking around? I mean, there were people of unusual height there. Uh, remember Goliath comes from that territory. Uh, so there were some clans that were of extraordinary height, relatively speaking, but all the people? They're kind of, a, they're embroidering a bit, aren't they? They're embellishing the story. It says, we saw the Nephilim. Okay, Nephilim, that's not a word you probably used this past week, just as a guess, unless you re read the passage in advance. Basically, they're saying there are giants there. Okay, now the Nephilim actually were gone courtesy of the flood, because as I recall, I don't believe any of Noah's family were Nephilim. Um, but we do see some tall people there, so they're, they're basically drawing that kind of genetic memory, if you will. <laughs> you know, there's some bad dudes out there. In fact, we saw them, and they were, they were so big. Compared to them, we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. Now that's kind of interesting. It's not like they look at us like grasshoppers. We look at us like grasshoppers is what he's saying. Oh, and by the way, it seemed that way to them too. Almost as an afterthought. You ever ask yourself why sometimes people need to embroider the story? I mean, it's apparent from what we've been reading that um, the 10 spies are afraid. They're fearful of going in. They, they're coming from a perspective of we're toast. We're not going to be able to make it. Um, but they have to embellish it. What was it that they were fearing so much? I think that they were afraid that Caleb was going to convince the people to go on in, and so they had to embellish things a bit. And I think a truth out of this is when you take God out of the picture, Problems do take on gigantic proportions. It's focusing on God that gets that perspective back where it should be. I don't know about you, but for me, listening to or watching the news or reading the newspaper can occasionally be toxic. Uh, it's at least bad for my blood pressure. I mean, there's all kinds of wonderful, in quotes, things to worry about. We can look at a, around in our own country at apparent moral decay, breakdown of the family. Yeah, yeah go on social media, or as I like to refer to it, anti-social media, because of some of the comments that you see in there. And you see all these terrible things that are getting these beautiful write-ups about. Breakdown of the family, moral decay, persecution around the world. We see what's going on in the Middle East. And taken just by itself, it's absolutely terrifying. Lawlessness. Are these reasons for concern? Absolutely. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying those are not important things. I'm not saying that those are not things to be concerned about. But if I forget to look to the Lord in the midst of that, a righteous concern can quickly become a faithless fear and can, in fact, even drop down into the level of despair. 
I mean, sometimes we can even tell physically when we're getting wound up. Uh, you know, suddenly realize we've got stiffness in the neck, our jaw is tight, headaches, perhaps a little bit of indigestion. If you're one of those lucky people that gets those symptoms, think of them as caution signs from the Lord. It's a little bit of a reminder. Redirect your gaze towards me. You know, problem ahead, redirect your gaze. David's so good at that. Um, just picked out one psalm, Psalm 13, where David starts off, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? That's a pretty dark place, isn't it? But he then starts, you see his perspective shifting as he changes and says, But consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. And he ends up, like David often does at the end of a psalm, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. I mean, did you, see, did you see the shift? Did you see the change in perspective? Wow, things are the pits. Things are bad. I'm crushed. I'm, I, I'm smashed down. But as I look to the Lord, I can trust his steadfast love. And that's what God calls us to do in those times when we find ourselves overwhelmed uh, by the giants in the land around us. Well, Fear is a potent thing. Uh, the bad report that these men brought had its expected effect. In verse 14, 1, it says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. Now, what should have been great anticipation for moving into the land of promise, I mean, they should have been sharing with each other, Did you see the size of those grapes? That cluster was huge. Instead, they're saying, did you hear about the size of those men? Did you hear about the size of the cities? They got their focus completely off the blessings of God. And they're focusing on what now suddenly seem insurmountable. They've fallen into despair. And, of course, despair quickly gives way to grumbling, which seemed to be the Israelite national pastime. And I have to admit, occasionally it's mine. Actually, printed out a little sign a number of years ago, and I have it in the break room at my office that's the whining with a circle and the line across it. Okay, that was not for my staff. Okay, that was a reminder for me. But they grumble. And verse 2 says, All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Poor Moses and Aaron. You know, they're following God. And the people are turning on him. It says, the whole congregation said to him, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness, in verse 20, or in this, in this wilderness, rather, in verse 2. Okay, now at this point, what terrible thing has happened to them? That's right, Nothing. Nothing has happened. They're still standing there just like they were 40 days or 40 days earlier when the spies were sent out. Nothing's happened. But now all of a sudden they're in absolute despair. They're grumbling against their leaders. 
they're letting their fears run away with them. They see their defeat as already accomplished rather than seeing God's victory as already accomplished. I mean, it gets worse. I mean, it's bad enough that they're grumbling against Moses and Aaron, but now they grumble against the Lord. And of course, ultimately, all grumbling is grumbling against the Lord. Verse 3, Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Do you see what they're doing there? They're accusing the Lord of bringing them out in the desert to kill them. They're ascribing murderous motives to the Lord God who has protected them and brought them out from slavery. They're accusing God of wanting them dead. God could do that real easy. Okay, no air in this area. Okay, if God wants them dead, they'd be dead. I mean, what's going on here? And then they have this great idea, would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Now, who was the Rhodes Scholar in their group that came up with that one? Okay. In fact, it was such a great idea, it says they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. You want a truth out of this? It's that fear robs us of our reason. Actually, the first thing I came up with is fear makes us make stupid choices. Somehow that didn't sound spiritual enough. But I think it's true, isn't it? You, know, you look back over your life, and you know, if you're like most of us, you probably have a few decisions you'd like to undo. And oftentimes those are made in the midst of fear. I mean, better to have died in Egypt. You know, granted, they're facing a big foe. Um, some battles are coming up. But better to have died in Egypt? I mean, that's not even rational. Better we had died in the wilderness. Then there's that idea of going back to Egypt. Actually, from Nehemiah 9.17, we're told that they actually did select somebody else to lead them. So they could everyone pack up their stuff and head back to Egypt. How are they planning on returning, just out of curiosity? Were they going to go back the way they came? With no water? No manna, no shade, no quail, no protection of the Lord. And then there's this small matter of the Red Sea. Okay. Or maybe they thought, okay, we'll go back to Egypt, but we'll go the coast route. It's kind of scenic anyway. Okay, it's scenic and inhabited. Okay, again, they don't have God's protection. They're worried about the folks in Canaan. They should be worried about the folks on the way back. Then there's the reception in Egypt. Stop and think about that. I mean, it was two years ago, it wasn't that long ago, folks, uh, that the country uh, was nearly decimated by the plagues. Every household had somebody that had died, not to mention their economy ruined and their army crushed. Do you think that the Egyptians really would welcome them back with open arms, even if they came back and said, hey, we'll come back and be servants? Totally irrational thinking. Have you ever experienced that kind of a thing? Probably not quite to that extent. But again, there are times when if we look at what we're contemplating and step back a little bit and try to get God's perspective on it, we're coming up with some pretty irrational things. 
There's also a, a kind of a by the way in here. Be careful what you wish for. As they say in verse 2, would that we had died in this wilderness. God grants their wish. The judgment that God pronounces on them a little further down in chapter 14, excuse me. Chapter 14, verses 20 to 35, the Lord pronounces his judgment on them and basically says, you are going to die in this wilderness. No one age 20 and up is going to enter the land save Caleb and Joshua, his two faithful spies. And they were worried about their children becoming prey. Their children are the ones that are going to inherit the land. But they're going to have to wait 40 years because of the stupidity of their parents. The faithlessness. They'd have to wait 40 years before they move in. Well, Moses and Aaron, at this point, it's starting to become a reflex for Moses and Aaron. Okay, they fell on their face. I mean, they're, they're humbling themselves. I'm not thinking so much before the people as they're humbling themselves before the Lord and they're um, praying for the people. They're uh, standing in the gap for them because they know how this faithless uh, talk is sounding to the Lord. And we see Joshua steps up this time with Caleb. There are some people that speculate the reason Joshua didn't start off with Caleb is since Joshua was Moses' right-hand man, he wanted to let the report stand on its own rather than making it look like it was uh, spin coming down from uh, the boss, if you will. But at this point, he, he and Caleb both stand up there and they rend their garments. I mean, this was a sign of deep, deep uh, despair and, and mourning. I mean, you just don't go over to TJ Maxx and buy a new garment when you're out in the middle of the desert back at that time frame. That was, that was saying a lot. They, they tore their garments just like you would do if you had lost a loved one. And they address the people. It says, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. Okay, we're in agreement with these guys on that. This is a wonderful place. It's flowing with milk and honey. But there's a real definite difference in Joshua and Caleb's perspective because they continue on in verse 8. It says, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. At no time do the other ten spies mention God at all. But Josh and Caleb, it's like, no, hey, it's not about us. It's not about the people of Canaan. It's all about the Lord. In verse 9, they continue on and they say, only do not rebel against the Lord. You know, again, it's about God. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Okay, this was a land that devours its inhabitants. They're saying, no, we're going to devour the inhabitants of this land. They said they're bread, we would say they're toast, yeah, which is just better done bread. 
For Josh and Caleb, they had a big God. Problems were little. They go on and they say about the people, they're bred for us. They said, their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. In other words, they're the ones that should be worrying, not us. We have the Lord God Almighty, the Lord who can part rivers, who can shake mountains, who can provide manna. We have the Lord on our side, and what do they have? They have nothing. In fact, they say their protection is removed from them. I thought it was kind of interesting. I was running past that. I was thinking, their protection. Hmm. What are they talking about? Are they talking about their cities? Are they talking about their armies? What is it that's been removed from them? Their protection was never their gods because they're nothing. Their protection was never their might for compared to God, it's nothing. It's interesting, as I was reading over this, it suddenly dawned on me that the only protection that they had was God's gracious withholding of judgment that he talked about back talking to Abram before he became Abraham. Back in Genesis 15, 16, he says, he was, he was telling them that your descendants will be numerous. They're going to go to another land where they'll be in servitude. That sounds pretty much like Egypt. And then they'll come back. It says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Reason? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There was a timetable. Now's the time. God says it's time for judgment to fall on Canaan. An interesting parallel to that is God in his grace and in his mercy is withholding judgment on unrepentant, unrepentant sinners today. But a time will come when he returns, when now's the time and judgment will fall. So what was the people's response to this heartwarming and stirring um, speech by Joshua and Caleb? I was telling Wayne, I hope this isn't my new life verse. said, then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Um, that was their response. I mean, they were beyond reason. At this point, they were murderously irrational. And God had to step in, and our passage today ends. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. That Shekinah glory just kind of was there. God forced them to reorient their perspective. Couldn't miss them. You look at the people, though, there comes a point where focusing on fear eclipses even the possibility of faith if we focus forever. Josh and Caleb had pointed the people, tried to point the people back to the Lord, but they're so fixed on the danger of going into the land, they couldn't even see where God would fit in in all of that. It was only God's very visible presence that kept them from stoning the very leaders that God had given them and provided for them. Have you ever had an experience where God has refocused you, has kind of forced you to 
to get your perspective back on him. Maybe a health crisis. I can tell you from personal experience, there's nothing like listening to the beep, beep, beep of a cardiac monitor to kind of put your perspective back in a little bit more appropriate alignment. Maybe a failed business, uh, failed relationships, failed ventures. You know, the fall gets our attention, but it's his presence in the midst of the crisis that makes all the difference and refocuses us. So I guess the bottom line question is, how do we live like a Joshua or a Caleb rather than like the 10 other guys whose names I don't remember? And you probably don't either. First of all, I think it's important that we realize just how easy it is to get into that, just like God said, however, mindset. I mean, if God has addressed the issue, there really is no however. That's only a lack of vision of him that leads us that way. It's interesting that that kind of thinking really goes all the way back to the garden in Genesis 3. God had weighed in on the subject. Don't eat the fruit of this tree. Okay. However, Eve saw it was delightful to look at. And it certainly would be desirable to make you wise in following that however. We all ended up where we are. Thank you, Eve. Of course, Adam joined. He probably mistaught her. Anyway. But that God said, however, has no place in our lives. And I think even just an awareness of that so we can kind of start hearing it in our reasoning, even reasoning to ourselves, let alone talking to somebody else. It's amazing how we can rationalize things. God has said, do not be unequally yoked. However, this guy I'm thinking of going into business with is a really nice guy. He's not a believer, but he's really moral. You know, and he's a good doctor and a good friend. And so I rationalized the first partnership. And there were some prices to pay on as a response of that. Did he turn out to be a bad guy and start killing patients? No. He's still a good guy, he's still a good doc. But as a business partner, I had rationalized around something that God had already addressed. I said, however, you guys can probably think of some areas, and I would hope that I'm not the only one in the room, um, but I am preaching myself a little bit on this. It's so easy to get into that. Uh, you know, God spoke, God said, God's promised, God is good. However, I almost look at, those as, look at that as our opposite to the you know, uh, but God statements that you enjoy going through uh, scripture. You know, ah, we were lost in sin, but God. You know, anyway, um, we kind of turn it the other way. A second thing we can do is we can recognize fear for what it is. Okay, what is fear? 
crickets. Fears of sin. But beyond it, it happens to be a sin that is an irrational disregard for God's role in our lives. If I'm fearful, it's because I'm not trusting that God's going to do what I know God can do. And the antidote to that trap is to know God's promises. To learn them, to memorize them, put them on your fridge, put a post-it note on your desk. More than that, we need a post-it note on our heart. Experiencing God's promises firsthand. How do we do that? Stepping out on those promises. As you go through your, your scripture study and you find promises... Apply them to what you're doing day to day. Perhaps uh, sharing your faith with that hard to talk to family member. You know, remember that the Lord promises that He will provide, His Spirit will provide us what we need to say, how we need to answer. Um, from a couple of weeks ago, trusting Him in your giving, um, trusting Him in a difficult work situation going on a short-term mission trip, get you out of your comfort area real soon, give you a chance to start putting some of those promises to practice. So know his promises and act on them. In other words, practice trusting him. And even practice trusting him in small things so we can see that he is so true to his word that we have the faith to then grow to trust him for those giants, for those big fortified problems that we have in our lives. He is able. And finally, ask God to let you see things from his perspective. Uh, Caleb and Joshua saw this whole episode in light of God being on the side of his people. The other 10 missed that. Our problems may be big, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we don't have big problems. We don't have tough challenges. We don't have things that stretch us. We do, but we have a God that is always bigger than anything that we face. One who can do more than we ask or think. And he's ready, able, and willing to bless his own. Shall we pray? Father God, we thank you that you are indeed a trustworthy God, a Lord who loves us, a Lord who cares for us, a Lord who puts up with us when we're sometimes pretty irrational. Lord, I would ask that you would allow each of us, I would ask for myself, that this truth would not be something that parks in my head, but Lord, that you would continually move it down to my heart, that I can live it out, that each of us can walk with you in faith, trust, and hope that we will live lives victorious, that will glorify you as other people say, there's no way they could have done that. Then we can say, yeah, but God did. We thank you in his name. Amen.